0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Thank you for your patience as we are getting into this episode today and actually we had um, a couple different episodes that were showing um, had some difficulty getting the the event started as well as we were scheduling it so if you are with us thank you for being here today we're kind of continuing on our series and talking through becoming your own banker we're actually on episode 13 and I'm really excited Bruce to be here talking with you about this fabulous book good morning Bruce
0: Good morning. We've, I've gotten some really good feedback from co- both clients and potential clients about how they like uh, going through uh, the book. So uh, I'm glad that people are finding some value in this.
1: That is excellent. I'm also putting the chat up. So if you have questions about infinite banking, life insurance, Nelson Nash, our practice, your financial life, we would love to hear them. So go ahead and pop those into the chat if you're listening live And we'll see if we can address them on the show or perhaps after the show, if it's more appropriate at that time. But I failed to say I'm Rachel Marshall and Bruce Wayner is with me as well. We are continuing on our Money Advantage podcast this morning, and we're excited to have you with us today. We are talking about Becoming Your Own Banker, and we're on episode 13 of a series that we're working through this book, and I can say we're still not even halfway done. So this is (laughs) a very good exposition Of Nelson Nash's original work on specially designed whole life insurance and how it helps you to become your own banker and take control of your financial life. So, Bruce, we're continuing on with a chapter that we began last time, which was two weeks ago. And this is called Creating the Entity. If you are listening along, you might find this on page 36 through 39 in the book. And the reason that we're going to continue this particular chapter is because there are a lot of additional elements in this chapter that are extremely valuable for you to hear and understand about how life insurance premiums work, how the pay structure can be set up, how the policy can be designed, what a mech is, how you can fund it for your full lifetime, how you can fund it for less timeframe and how that impacts the policy design. And there's just so much to understanding life insurance as a whole. And there, see what I did there? as a whole whole life insurance but we've got whole life which was also originally called
0: um ordinary life
1: like it starts with an O. (laughs) I was gonna say original life i'm like that doesn't sound right ordinary life we've got um some modifications then term life variable life universal life we're going to talk about the history of that today and bruce has a very excellent way of making this all make sense and so let's go ahead and jump in bruce um what are your thoughts as we're getting started on this particular topic today on this concept of overfunding a life insurance policy and why you would want to do that?
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting. I, overfunding, and Nelson kind of alludes to this a little bit in the in book. I'm not sure he was a, a big fan of that term. He did occasionally use it. Put it, it in I,
2: quotes.
0: Yeah, I I occasionally use it, and I'm not sure I'm a big fan of it because There's no such thing as really overfunding it, because you can only fund it as much as the MEC laws allow. So if you're actually overfunding it, then you actually, it becomes a modified endowment contract, which as Nelson points out in the book, just briefly, it's not the worst thing in the world. Because if if you have a bank, and you're putting money into the bank, or if you have a brokerage account, you're putting money into a brokerage account. And it grows, you have to pay taxes on it. So the same thing would happen if you were to build an extremely overfunded um, whole life insurance contract, because that would then simply mean it's not that it's not that much different than a bank or a brokerage account. You have to pay taxes to access it. But that's not that big a deal because that's where it was sitting in the first place. So yes he does mention and i agree and everybody in the industry tries to do this we try to make sure we're snuggling up to the modified endowment contract line snuggling up to that that allows you to put the most cash value into the particular contract without it becoming taxable when you access it even as a loan that's the caveat um, because everybody thinks well it's a loan You you know, loans are never taxable. Well, in this case, they are um, because they're they're actually considered growth then and not and not just a loan like a traditional loan. So, you know, Nelson was a big a big component of of trying to do this in the shortest period of time. But you also have to take the human component of it. So this is another thing that people talk about all the time when we meet with with potential clients is like, well, Nelson said over a five-year period. Well, Nelson also said to expand your own system and expanding your own system um, would also mean that you can continue to expand that contract, but also build more contracts.
1: So Bruce, a couple of things about um, that before we dive in. I think the idea of overfunding came from the idea that normally when you're shopping, you want to get a good deal. And normally when you're shopping, you would say, well, if I can get two things that are exactly equal and one is a lower cost than the other one, I would probably rather pay less and be a wise spender or a frugal shopper. And not that you have to pinch pennies, but it's human nature to think, well, I would like to get the most for the least amount of money if it's a cost. And I think sometimes that idea can come over into life insurance thinking, well, if I'm buying a death benefit, wouldn't I want to get as much death benefit for as little premium as possible? And the problem with that thinking is that it doesn't allow you to really think properly about life insurance and what it can do for you in terms of banking. And so the idea of overfunding feels like a, and I say feel because I think this is a feeling it's not necessarily a logical way of thinking about life insurance, but it's a feeling of I'm paying more than I need to for this death benefit. The, the issue though really is that we don't want to think about life insurance just as a death benefit component. It really is this powerful banking tool to store cash Have the ability to access it, have tax advantages, not have to qualify to access capital through loans from your banking policy, allow the policy to continue growing uninterrupted, use that money somewhere else. There's just so many facets to this that when we consider the banking component, well, why would you not want to put as much as possible in to get the most benefit in your lifetime? And so I think it's towing that line between thinking of it just as a death benefit or thinking about it as the living. Benefit, which is really the banking component, and so um, I think that's where the the feeling of overfunding comes in—the human nature, the emotion of putting money into something that we call life insurance.
0: Yeah, I don't know if this will help Rachel, but Nelson points out that you know most of the people are going to die after age sixty-five,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: even since he's written this book, it's gotten even um, more prevalent that even more people are going to die after sixty-five. Meaning
1: longer lifespan, longer longevity.
0: Correct. And so what he was saying is, is that, yes, you need some insurance during your prime working years for protection. But if you do a properly funded whole life insurance, it actually maximizes the death benefit at the time when you're really going to need it. And that is that mortality. What happens with term insurance, which there's a place for term insurance. Heck, there's a term component in most whole life insurance contracts, but the, but the time that the term expires is the time when you're getting close to mortality in most cases. And we've mentioned this on the, on the uh, show before, only about 1.5% of all term uh, insurance contracts ever pay a death benefit. Does that mean they're bad? Well, I mean, you're paying car insurance and you're paying homeowners insurance as Nelson points out and and hoping time, not to use it yeah and most of the time it doesn't it doesn't pay out so it's not like you shouldn't have homeowners and car insurance so that means it doesn't mean you shouldn't have term life insurance just because it's renting the insurance it plays a really important part in getting you up to your human life value as the whole life insurance uh, death benefit grows. So uh, I think it's really important that people don't have a negative connotation on term insurance, also.
1: Absolutely agreed. So there's something that you said, and we had teased out just a little bit at the beginning of the last time we had this conversation. And it was this component that if in the early years you play down the death benefit or you pull down the death benefit in order to put more cash in and in order to have it work most most effectively for banking, then you'll have more death benefit in the later years when you're actually going to die and the policy will pay out more when you structure it that way. So Bruce, I think that's one side that we need to explain a little bit. And then there's a challenge of thinking, Well, shouldn't I just pull the death benefit down as low as possible and put as much cash value in now and why that can have a problem as well with the growth. So um, I don't know if I said that clearly, but what I want to first walk through is the idea that in order to have the most death benefit in the future, you can have the most cash value now and, and pull down the death benefit today which is why that idea of overfunding comes in. I'm putting a lot of cash in for a small amount of death benefit when I first start the policy, which allows it to have a higher death benefit later. How does it do that? Well, it's through the growth of dividends and interest. And as you structure the policy, you have a lot of options for what you want to do with those dividends when they when they are um, delivered from the insurance company. And one of the best ways to design a policy is to have that dividend, then buy additional paid up insurance. Which then expands the amount of insurance and continues to have the death benefit rise over the lifetime of the policy. Bruce, I'm sure that that might be a little oversimplified. Do you want to explain what I meant by that? Yeah.
0: Well, I think the I think the best way to start with this is exactly the way Nelson started with it. So he says, you know, the best way, if all you're worried about is having the most cash value with the least amount of death benefit, is to do a single premium paid-up additions. And what that means for, for everybody out there, and I I hammer home this with everybody about what a paid-up additions mean. Don't overcomplicate it. It simply means that you don't have to put any more premiums in. So, a single premium paid-up additions, or SPUA, simply is the way that you can get this accomplished as the most Cash value and the least amount of death benefit. But the problem with it, a lot of times it will mech. Okay. And so, in order to do that, what ends up happening is it's just one payment. You just give payment to the insurance company and say, here, this is a lump sum payment. I don't want to ever pay anymore. Well, there's a one year test and a seven year test with the mech limits. And oftentimes, they, that one-year test will not jive with the single premium. So Nelson says that's one way to do it. And once again, he said, don't get overly excited, um, not excited, but exacerbated about, oh, it's going to become a mech because where your money was laying already was taxable. But he said, if you want to do this, and this is preferred, not that's your absolute, but preferred, start moving down the line and moving away from the single the single premium that's only the the only design concept you have once you do that, then you cross this line, the mech line where the the IRS says, okay, this design will work well it will not mech the policy. Nelson mentions a twenty pay life, which means they've taken the premiums and the actuaries have said. At whatever age, I think Nelson was using a twenty-five-year-old.
1: Yes, he did, and yeah. and at the time that life insurance, um, the end of life insurance was hundred, which is now pushed up to one hundred and twenty-one. So he was for looking most, at- for
0: most, yeah, for most client, uh, companies. There are a few companies, I believe, they're still at hundred. I believe they're stock companies, though, not mutual companies. But anyway, so he he said that twenty pay. So for age twenty-five to forty-five, you only have to pay. And then he says, the, the next way of doing it is to pay up to age 65. That would be another design. And then finally, um, as we move to the right, uh, there is ordinary life, which is really just a whole life paid um, for your entire life up to 121 or 100, whatever the company is, and that has a longer pain. Well, as you go longer and longer, you actually um, lessen the ratio of cash value to death benefit. So So
1: meaning the the longer you pay, the more cash value compared to death benefit or the the less? You said you lessen the
0: ratio. Okay. You lessen the ratios. So um, it will take longer for you to have a better cash value to death benefit ratio if you just simply do ordinary life or whole life, which we now call base, the base policy. So this is where Nelson often talked about this being an art. And this is why you have to actually talk to the client for an extended (laughs) period of time. It drives me crazy when people reach out to the money advantage and I asked, and they have already have illustrations from another company. And I said, Well, what did they ask you? Well, they just asked me how much premium I wanted to put in. And, the, and I said, Well, how long did it take you to get the illustrations? Oh, they gave it to me during the meeting. It took about four minutes. I mean, literally, we had somebody a couple months ago say it took four minutes. Well, whenever you take that little bit of time, what you're really doing is you're probably working with an inexperienced person who has been taught to work an illustration computer program and they have one design and they just crank it out to everybody.
1: And it's a commodity at that point. I mean, it's correct. It's not tailored to your needs.
0: Correct. And so as Nelson talks in in the book, you have to balance all three of these components. You have to balance the ordinary life, which is the base. You have to balance a term part of it so that we can Increase or overfund it or in the early years by using a, a series of PUAs, which simply are single premium by contract because you do not have to continue to put the PUAs in. You can put it in one single time, or you in some companies you can skip a year and come back and catch up to a certain extent. So, what you're really doing is every year you have ex- excess money which the agent would only know if they ask you a series of questions about your financial life. And they would actually then be able to predict how much cash value. When you're not talking to people about their own financial life and they say, well, we're going to pull the base down to as low as possible because in the future, if you don't have the money, then you can simply pay the base or what we call ordinary life. The problem with that is, yeah, now you can make that base premium easily, but now that base premium is not going to uh, actually come up to the MEC line, and you're not going to get a lot of cash value. So yes, there's some pros that you do not have to fully fund it, but that's the whole idea is to fully fund it to increase the cash value. Mm -hmm. So to me, that argument is not very good. The only reason you make that argument is because you haven't taken the time to actually talk to the person, find out about their their, uh, assets, find out about their cash flow, and actually design something that you feel confident that they will pay for 10 years, 20 years, to age 65, or in some cases, as long as the contract will allow because that's going to actually get you the highest cash value to death benefit ratio.
1: Okay, so let's recap a little bit. And um one thing that you said in there was shortening or you started with the smallest the smallest window for pain for life insurance out to the largest window of pain for life insurance. So, let's be really clear. We're talking about a whole life insurance contract which will pay out a death benefit whenever you pass away, meaning that it's going to be in effect for your whole life not, let me make sure that that's clear. It will be in two separate words, effect, not ineffective. It will be in effect. The policy will be in uh, force whole, your whole life. We're talking about the window of time that you're putting the premiums in. So instead of having the option of only paying in one time and having that contract last your whole life. We're saying that you could pay 20 years or 40 years or your full life for that same coverage to last your entire lifetime. Then you're saying, Bruce, the longer you pay into the contract, the more cash value you have compared to death benefit. Is that what you're saying? I want to make sure. Correct. that I'm Okay.
0: Correct. Because what, what, there's a new trend out there. And it's not terrible. We've actually done it for a few clients under specific circumstances. Adding single premium paid up additions, which are very effective in cash value, but not as effective for long-term growth. And the consequences of it is when you do that, because now you can put as much cash value as possible compared to the death benefit in order to not make it mech, you have to add a tremendous amount of term insurance. Now, that's not necessarily bad, okay? But that term insurance actually does one of two things. Well, it does several things, but here's two things that I think are, are bad about it. One, it adds a tremendous amount of, of cost to the contract that you do not get cash value to or from, excuse me. And the other thing it is, it eats up your human life value, so that if you want to expand the system, it's much harder to expand the system.
1: Because by you Expand the system? Have, you mean adding additional, additional policies to get additional death benefit to put additional cash into? Especially when you're in a position of wanting to expand your banking policies. That's what you mean by expanding the system.
0: Yeah, we're we're dealing with that right now with a, a couple down in Florida, and. You know, I'm just going to. I'm. I'm not. It's not that I uh, know everything. I just sat in on a bunch of meetings over my life. And this couple down in Florida. You do know a lot, Bruce. This couple down in Florida, um, he had a term policy, and he actually had a very aggressive form of prostate cancer at age 57.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, So then he decided to put whole life contracts on his wife and who he worked with actually convinced them that, oh, you need a lot of cash value, you know, so on and so forth. And they put a large uh, PUA on them, SPUA, single premium. And that did get a lot of death benefit because not only that bought a lot of death benefit, but it also caused them to have a lot of term on the contract. And now he, has, he continues, his business continues to get thriving, get better and better. He has a lot of cash sitting around, and he wants to put more life insurance on his wife. Well, unfortunately, she's at her human life value because of the term. Now, we can convert the term, mm-hmm. and we can do that. But now you lose liquidity in that time period. And the current contracts, Actually, she actually has, she actually has two contracts. The the current two contracts now you're gonna you're not going to be able to put as much cash into it because you've taken the term off of it and converted it. So he was a little disturbed, although he still has a he still has good systems that the the SPU a placed on that was great for early cash value, but it did mess up the expansion of the system. Not that they can't expand, but they're already up to the MEC limit, and it's going to change the liquidity situation uh, going forward. So I've said this probably, we could go back, Rachel, but probably literally dozens of times on the show. Everybody thinks they have it figured out, but if you pull one lever in the contract design, another lever goes up. And if you pull that other lever down, the other lever goes up there's no magic formula of one design. You have to actually sit down with the person, ask them what they're trying to accomplish, and then also leave room for unexpected uh, things that come up, like this person um, actually getting prostate cancer, very bad prostate cancer, by the way, at age 57. So that's why it's important that Whoever you're working with is explaining to you all the pros and cons of each component of the life insurance.
1: So there's a lot um, in there, and so the the question I can hear somebody probably asking would be, if I am going to be in a position of paying for this life insurance, you're saying I don't. So Bruce, you're saying I don't want to just pay one time into the policy because in that case. Your cash value is going to be high, but your death benefit's low. Correct. Correct. Yes. So the ideal would be to pay over your entire lifetime because in that case, your cash value early might be lower, but your long-term death benefit is going to be, your death benefit is going to be higher. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. I wouldn't say necessarily for sure it would be ideal to pay over your entire lifetime. It would actually be what your objectives are but I think you need to be able to sit down and talk about why it is good or or not as good for you to pay over your entire lifetime. I do think you want to have plans because your earning potential only gets better. I know that's hard for people to understand when they're in the the day to day. You know, I, my first job, I made 18,900, um, $80,900. $80,900. And then 40 years later, you know, I'm um, 10, 15, 20 times multiple of that. My wife, the same way. And
1: that's much bigger than inflation. And, You're not just talking about inflation has caused this right. to go up. It's your Correct. skill level and your ability to serve has improved, which now that is compensated by income, dollar income. Right.
0: Correct. And I never, I never saw that as in, in, in my early years. I'm not even sure I saw that in my 40s mm. or realized that. But as you continue, and this is another part that I actually um, wrote down was, you know, Nelson was talking about, uh, re- he hated the word retirement. And <laughs> to him, he, he used to always say, if you look up in Webster Dictionary, uh, to retire means to take out a service. Why would you want to be taken out of service? And I thought, you know, this is great. And then he also that he hated government programs. And so when, we're, when he was talking about it, we, we hit on this a little bit last time. Um, Social Security was made in 1935 when the average life expectancy was only 61.7 years. Mm-hmm. And so, heck, not, not that many people were living past 65 well, now he was—he's also talking about. I think it was—it uh, was either John Bogle, I, I can't remember, of um, Vanguard, or it might have been the E. F. Hutton guy. But one of them was talking about you should really work until age seventy. You should not think about retiring until age seventy. And you know, Nelson would say you should never really retire,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, but the reason for that is you're now you have more wisdom you have more knowledge knowledge and wisdom are not the same knowledge is one thing wisdom is applying that knowledge you and i would like to add a couple more things you now have the most relationships you've ever had in your life so you can actually actually leverage those relationships in a good way to help them along or help them along. And you, if you serve them, you're going to get compensated. And you are finally, I think this might be the most important part of it. You now are, you can see into the future a lot easier and understand that the future has some great things coming for you because you understand that bad things are temporary. When you're younger, you don't think bad things are temporary. So you, you were always going to have to overcome obstacles. That's why having cash value to help you overcome obstacles is a good thing. That's why having death benefit to overcome obstacles is a good thing. So those components actually help you expand. That's where I was going with all this. Expand your system because you should be continue to add value to people's life. Thus, you're going to continue to get paid and paid very well as you expand. Of course, Rachel, I can hear people out there yelling, you know, well, my dad actually lost his job and didn't make very much as, yes, I understand there's exceptions to every rule, but in general, Mm -hmm. this is what happens.
1: We'll see. And the situation with that is that it can be easy. And Bruce, I hope that this is just a a recap of what you just said. Um, But it can be really easy when you're starting out to say, this infinite banking thing looks really amazing, except I feel really um, frustrated tying myself to the requirement to pay premium my entire life because it feels like a ball and chain. Uh, I'm going to say to that, you could say that about any commitment that you ever make in your life, except the commitments that you make make you a better person because of the commitment. They limit your options, which then allow you to be more of a force for good. That's why marriage is good. That's why having children is good. That's why committing to anything, committing to a career, committing to a business partnership, anything that you commit to, committing to fulfill to a customer obligation or a client obligation, it is good for you to make commitments because then fulfilling them requires you to become a better person. So the commitment is good, but sometimes at the beginning, it can feel like this is really cumbersome. It's very overwhelming to think that I'm going to pay premium every single year into the future of my policy. So there's a couple of things that are important for you to note as well. Bruce mentioned earlier that sometimes you, well, not sometimes, you have the ability to not always fully pay your your paid up additions, your PUA's on a policy. There's a lot of options to change the way you pay, to um, pay a little bit less to pay from policy values. There are so many options along the way. If you do come into a hard season, which might be a year, a two-year window, or three years, it, you have a lot of options to be able to change how you're paying a policy. So don't let that commitment and that um, that long-term commitment scare you from getting started in the commitment. So a, I want to say that. B, it's really important to recognize that. As Bruce was just saying, your desire for wanting the life insurance, wanting the banking system, once you see the value of it and the impact of it, it's just going to go up. Your earning potential will increase. So you're going to have more money that you're going to want to put into this system. And you're going to see the value of it because you're going to be feeling those payments of dividends. You're going to see the dividends um, applying to the policy being larger than the premiums that you put in, in that year, very early on in the policy. And when you start feeling that growth it's very valuable to you. And it can be really exhilarating to realize that you've made a really good decision in the past. And now when you start reaping the rewards of that, it makes you hungry to be able to accelerate this in your life. Um, So that Bruce, I was just hoping was a a little bit of a recap, but there's a couple of things I want to go back to. And one, there's actually a lot of things I want to go back to. So one, let's just clarify this first. You said Nelson wanted to always balance three things. You got through the first two of them. You said ordinary base, Term and what was the third thing? I just want to make sure for anyone who is listening to that that segment. Well,
0: yeah. So the PUA's actually will balance how much early cash value you have.
1: So basically, base PUA's and term; those are the three things to balance. Okay. Correct.
0: Okay. Those are the three things to balance.
1: Okay, and then we started by saying if we want to make sure that we maximize the policy we want to have the banking component. We want to have access to cash value now. Structuring a policy for banking, which lowers your death benefit today, actually will allow you to have a greater death benefit in the future. But we don't want to take that so far to say, well, let's have the minimum base policy and the minimum death benefit possible now and just put a bunch of PUAs in. Why do we not want to do that? I want to hear a really specific, clear answer, especially for the person who might be thinking, well, why do I not just want to go ahead and Shrink my base down as far as po- possible. I know we've had tons of episodes on this, um, but for anyone who's listening right now, what would you say? That yeah, question? well,
0: number one, the, the PUA, as we just talked about, uh, has the smallest ratio of, or the, excuse me, the greatest ratio of cash value to death benefit. So that means the death benefit is very low. The dividend calculations are based upon, um, not only the premium, but the death benefit. So the smaller the death benefit, the smaller the dividend. So when you have ordinary life or base, you're going to have a greater death benefit. Why is that? Because you're going to, actuarially, you're going to continue to pay that, that premium for whatever the contract amount is, whether it's 20 pay pay to age 65, pay to age 100, or pay to age 121. So the, so that means the death benefit that you're buying is a lot higher relative to the premium amount. Mm-hmm. So the actuaries actually base the dividend on that for a couple of reasons. One, and it's proprietary. So I'm extrapolating this from talking to CIOs. Chief investment officers from several companies. Number one, they know they're gonna continue to get um, premium for that time period. Okay, so they can take a long-term approach. It's very simple to explain if you understand bonds, which they actually invest in. If you don't understand bonds, you understand CDs at a bank. Okay, a CD, the shorter the duration, you get one for three months. Right now you might get. 0.75%. You get one for five years, you might get 4.5%. So you can see then the bank can afford to pay you 4.5% because they know they're going to have that money for five years. So if the insurance company knows you're going to be paying this for a longer duration, they can actually put more money in longer duration bonds, which pays more. -hmm. Well, then, if they pay more, then the profit is going to be made by the insurance company. And guess who owns the insurance company?
1: You, You the policy owners. Yes.
0: So that means they're going to reward you by paying more dividends towards the base because the, the death benefit is controlling how long that duration is going to be. With a single PUA, They're getting, they only know they're getting it for one time. So think of it as a one year CD. A one year CD doesn't pay as much as a five year CD. So the dividend is significantly lower. It's only about 10% in most cases of what the base dividend is. That can have a tremendous amount of of, uh, ramifications on compounding too. Because whenever you get a dividend, that dividend's buying more paid-up additions. And now the next time, you're going to get dividends on the dividends. So if you have a higher dividend, you're going to get a more compounding, especially in the early years. Eventually, the PUA dividend will catch up after 20, 30, 40 years, depending on the design. Because the PUA continues to buy death benefit. And eventually, the death benefit of the PUA will equal the death benefit of the base policy. And so, the ratio will be good. But in that 20, 30, 40-year time period, you're not getting the same compounding effect because now you pulled the base down. So, the base dividend is smaller. So, you're not going to get the same compounding. So So
1: that's why you don't want to make sure you don't want to just say, let's just do banking. Let's forget about the life insurance. Let's completely throw life insurance out the window and minimize the base or minimize the the death benefit as much as possible, because you're not going to have as much growth over the time, the life of your policy when you do it that way.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's
1: the art that comes into this. That's not a exact design. That's always ideal for each person.
0: Absolutely. And and see the, the people that are arguing, and, and I, once again, I'm not saying you can't do a 1090 policy. I'm just saying you can't call that infinite banking, okay, because it's not infinite banking. One thing, the reason infinite banking, because there's an infinite possibilities with, with the uh, design, and there's an infinite possibilities of the way you use it. When you design it with a small base and a high PUA, there's not an infinite way that you can design it And they would argue, yes, but there's an infinite way that I can borrow the cash value and use it and make more than the dividends I would be earning. Okay, I have no problem with that. However, whatever you make out there, you have to pay taxes on. Let's remember that. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's not guaranteed. Let's remember that. So inside the contract, there's guarantees. And some people are screaming at the podcast right now, well, dividends aren't guaranteed. Yes, I know that. But if you look at any mutual company, they've paid dividends even through the Great Depression, World War II, the Great Recession—all these time periods—they've paid. So they're not guaranteed by contract, but they're highly probable. And so that's why you have to take that in consideration. I would say they're a lot more probable than if you take it out and do a real estate deal. Okay, and that's What's that's the just really what we're fair way to think it to. about it. Yeah. Uh,
1: okay, so now. We have two more components that we really need to bring into this this chapter. Hey, before
0: we do that, Rachel, yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, there uh, are JJ, JJ. There's some yeah. There's some questions. So, so uh, JJ, thanks for that. Yes, I am. I'm very proud to take the um, the responsibility of being on the Nelson Nash Practitioners Council very very seriously. And we are going out to Denver for a three day retreat from the 17th through the 20th of September, 2023 to actually uh, put in the guidelines to uh, make sure that the Nelson Nash Institute continues on well past uh, Nelson. And this was something that Nelson visualized before his death, passed it on to David Stearns, his, bro- his son-in-law who's now running the Institute. David is also getting up in years. And so we have to, to put the guidelines down to actually make sure that this goes well behind um, Nelson and David going forward. So thank you, JJ. And JJ, also, if you, this is a great question. If you do key man policy, are you eating away at the human life value for that person? Like they wanted their own personal contract would they limit it? Yes. In most cases, JJ, it does. Yes. and, And you have to, so what he's saying is like, if and I, and I just did this one for about a year ago for a local company that does point of sale. Um, they had a salesperson that was really good and they did not want them to leave. So they did, they did a key man insurance on him and they were also worried about what if he died because now they'd have to hire somebody and that new person might not be as good right away. So we did a key man insurance where we took life insurance out of him, and we deferred Compton. So it was a combination of key man and deferred comp. And the deferred comp portion of it is now this one we designed differently once again because it had a, this particular policy was for something different. We actually made sure that the PUA's were, were really great because after five years they wanted to be able to give the cash value in the form of giving the contract, making the contract owner the key man salesperson. And they wanted to, to be, have the same amount of money at the end of five years as they put in for premium. So we had to really up the PUA's and we had to up the term amount. That's okay because they wanted to be able to do that person to feel good about having that deferred comp. And he was going to have to pay the taxes on that at that time. Be- okay. Because whenever you, whenever you take it out and give up the contract, anything above the cost basis would be, he'd have to pay taxes on.
1: It. So they wanted to and, cash in the policy.
0: Well, they or... wanted him to have that option to be able to oh, do that.
1: Okay. They weren't going okay? to do it for sure. Okay.
0: Correct. They wanted him to have that option to do that. Now we talked about, well, let's explain to him. He could take a loan against the policy. But the other thing is, is that um, at that time, I mean, either way, when they give that away, then the current company can actually take it as a tax deduction because they gave it to him. So it could become a taxable event. So, so JJ, that was a long answer. But the short answer, is yes, it does eat into their human life value in most cases.
1: All right. Actually, there's another comment too. Joe DeFazio is on LinkedIn and said, "Great point, Bruce." Bruce, I forgot you can't see these ones on LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was back, way back when you were talking about, um, I believe the when you were saying the longer you pay the contract, the less cash value to death benefit ratio. I think that's where mm-hmm. he was uh, making or said that great point. And then there was a um, comment as well, or a question that Joe DeFazio brought in a little after that. He said, "Would converting the term rider from one policy?" into a new policy, potentially cause a mech trigger on the first policy?
0: Well, yeah, potentially that's why you would have to go with the company, do an in-force illustration and ask them, how much can we convert without mecking the policy? Okay, so that, was a, that would be the first thing you do, can do. More than likely, um, if, if it was a very conservative company, which we tend to work with, they would already have figured that in and, and given some buffer into that, so we would not do that. But Joe's absolutely right. We'd have to we'd have to look at that, and thus what what it means that what Joe's trying to point out, and he's absolutely one hundred percent correct. Is you may only be able to convert a very small amount because you you would be mecking the other policy because it's 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 what's called a material change in the contract. Whenever there's a material change in the contract, they actually have to reapply the MEC 7 pay test to to see if it does become a modified endowment contract. And frankly, Joe and Rachel and everybody else is listening. You At that time, you may want to MEC the contract. And I know that sounds crazy, but you may say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and MEC that contract because I... Don't really need the cash value in there anymore. Or if I do need to access it, yeah, okay, I'll pay the taxes that I have. But the death benefit will actually go to help pay my estate taxes. The new contract now we can set up to fund like a traditional banking policy again. Mm-hmm. This is why conversations are very, very important. Great point, Joe. Bring- Thank you for participating.
1: Yeah. I would bring in another idea to that, which would be in addition to setting up your banking policy, it's always wise to think about having that term insurance as well. If you're in a um, age time frame that makes sense to fund an additional term policy, that's not part of your whole life policy, but a side term policy that helps you to get your full human life value so that you're in a position of having that ability to convert. Because if you just take a traditional term policy, and convert that over to whole life insurance there's no issues with mecking at that point
0: well, yeah as long as you decide it so there's no issues the
1: new that. policy yes as yeah. long as you design the new policy properly okay um jose then on facebook great new um thank you bruce and rachel always great content amazing knowledge i appreciate what you're doing so thank you jose thank you for everyone who's um chiming in here if you have any questions about what we're discussing please go ahead and pop those into the comments thank you for all of the comments that are here so far, and then go ahead and hit like on wherever you're watching this episode as well. Bruce, if somebody said, okay, I think there's two things that we need to really tease out. We have a short time window to do this. So let's see if we can cover both of them. If somebody is in a position of saying, okay, I understand that I should endeavor to set up a policy that I can put as much cash into over my entire life as possible, or maybe... For the purposes of growing this policy and having banking and having the most cash value today and having the most death benefit in the future, and having this one policy perform as as effectively and efficiently as possible, I want to put as much cash in as possible. That was how we designed one of our policies that we wanted to say we don't want a narrow time window to put cash in. We want to pay it as much as possible over our entire lifetime, as long as possible. So if we put that in place and then somebody, says, okay, now I'm several years into the policy. I, I want to think about how to um, what, what my options are to narrow the, the payment window. I want to talk about what reduced paying up means. And then also, is there a way to design the policy in advance to be a 10 pay or a 20 pay and how those options might be available before you start a contract?
0: Yeah, so yeah, different companies have different short pays the most common is a 10 pay in today's environment, the most common is a 10 pay. And what they have done actuarially is to figure out uh, if you only pay the premiums for 10 years and the consequences of that are that you're going to get a lot more cash value uh, early on in the policy, but you're also going to, you're pulling down the death benefit a lot. So the, uh, it will continue to grow after ten years, but the growth will not be quite as much because you have you have pulled down the death benefit so much. So now the only growth is coming from the dividends and interest, and the dividends are going to be smaller because you pu- you had to pull the um, or you wanted to pull the the death benefit down. So yes, you can design as a ten pay, and we've done this a couple of times. We tend not to do that. We tend to more actually do a either a pay to 75 or 40 years, whichever is longer. We have done 10 pays though. I want to make that very clear. And the reason we do that is once we go through that illustration, this just happened the other day, we were going through this illustration, which we all know snapshots in time. But even if it's a snapshot in time, you can actually see some potential good things after 10 years. One of the good things is, is that because you're getting the compounding in year 13, 14, 15, you might put put $50,000 in the contract and your growth of your cash value that year doubles. I'm not saying the dividend doubles, but the dividend and the interest doubles. So now suddenly you have twice as much of the 50000 at the end of that time period. So I tell people, if that's the efficiency, then why would you want to stop paying? Wouldn't you like to pay 50000 And at the end of that year, you have 100000
1: So what you're saying okay, so. is if you design as a 10-pay, you can't get to 10 years and then decide you want to pay your whole life into that you contract. You
0: cannot. That's what the contract. The great thing about these specially designed life insurance contracts is there is a contract involved. It tells you what you can and cannot do. And then you as a policyholder decide if that's the contract that you want. And then you decide it's a unilateral contract to actually incorporate the things within the contract. And so what, if you do a 10 pay at the end of 10 years, you, have, you cannot put more money into it. Mm-hmm. It will still grow. The cash value will still grow through interest and dividends, but you cannot put any more money in. So, we tend to show people that it probably makes sense to give you the option to continue. However, per contract, and this is where you were going, Rachel, you, in the contract, it also has something called a reduced paid up. And the reduced paid up simply means at the end of whatever time period you want it to be, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, whatever the time period you want it to be, you can say to the company, I decided I don't want to pay premiums anymore. So the actuaries will then look at your cash value. And if you've accessed it through policy loans and you didn't pay it back, the cash value is going to be less.
1: Well, the available cash value is going to be less.
0: The available cash value will be less, but they're going to look at the cash value. And they're going to say, okay, we're going to pretend now this is a single premium at this age. And so we're going to give you a death benefit that's not going to be that much more than what the cash value is depending on where your age is. So now it's all paid up. The consequences of this is you can't change your mind.
1: After you've reduced paid up.
0: Yeah. Once you've reduced paid up, you cannot come back and say, you know, that life insurance contract, I'd like to continue to put money into it because now um, I see the value or I've got more money now and I'd like to put it somewhere. Now you'll still earn interest and dividends, just like you did with a 10 pay. So essentially what you've done is you've made your own 10 pay
1: mm-hmm. policy. Or 12 with the pay or whatever, or whenever 12, you, whatever. yeah. Exactly. Whenever you choose to reduce pay up, you've paid for that length of time.
0: Correct. And so, it's, but you are in control that way. That
1: what so I think is interesting about that, though, is if you thought that you wanted to have as much life insurance as possible, now you had your first banking policy or your, your banking contract, you added term life insurance, and you had as much death benefit as you can get. Let's just say you're in that position. And then you came into a, a time window of your life that said, I'm not wanting to keep funding this policy with this amount of premium, you reduce pay up. And now you want to a year or two later from that, add more life insurance. Again, you have the backup or the fallback to go back to that term policy and convert a portion of that over into whole life insurance. So that could be one way to think about um, providing a option for yourself to have a place to put cash in the future. Even if you reduce paid up, in case you were in a situation where maybe you couldn't qualify for insurance anymore. The problem with that would be you're going to have to go through that period of low liquidity again at the beginning years of a new policy, but that's how it is whenever you add additional contracts to your banking system.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very good point. Very good point. So Rachel, I don't know if we want to wrap up by just talking a little bit about universal life and variable life or if we want to- I do. So
1: here's where I was, that was the second piece that I wanted to go too. And the whole reason I think Nelson brought in that idea was, well, if we want as much growth and banking as possible, there were a few, um, I don't know if you want to call them, uh, alterations, you could call them perversions of whole life insurance, whatever your vantage point is. There were changes to life insurance when people tried to get higher growth. And so I'd like to just kind of walk through that real quickly. Then we do have a few, um, a few comments as well here that we can address, but I would love for you to just walk through a quick history of why various types of life insurance came into effect. Uh, yeah, in so a couple of minutes.
0: yeah, so you know everything is about the free market. I tell that I say that all the time, and insurance companies are not. If you understand business, it's about the free market. Hopefully, it's about the free market. I don't really know how. If we're still in the free market as we manipulate <laughs> the Federal Reserve rates, that's for, that's for another show. And we'll let, our, we'll let our friend James Nethery get his blood pressure up over that. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that in whole life was, was the number one way that people did insurance and stored money up until about 1980. And we had Ted Benna on early in our podcasting. And, and if you heard that episode, the 401k came about in 1979. Interest rates were astronomical. They're, they were even worse than they are right now. And so what happened was there's really high interest rates. And so people were trying to figure out When I say people, I'm talking about people at these different Um, at these different insurance companies were were losing cash flow because people were contributing to their 401ks instead of their whole life insurance. So they decided, let's take advantage of this marketing idea that, oh, look, you could actually get cash value in a universal life and it's actually going to be tied to the indexes Excuse me, the interest rates that are really high right now. And so they did these illustrations, and I'm not kidding you, I've seen them. They're, they did about 12, 15% for the life of the policy. And that particular policy then did not actually perform the way they thought it was going to perform. And if, if you're looking on YouTube or wherever you're looking at right now, the Wall Street Journal in 2000, 2018, actually wrote an article called Universal Life, a 1980s sensation has backfired. And the reason it, has backfired, it backfired is because they did not sustain those high interest rates that were supposed to supplement your actual premium. So your premium was X. It should have been X plus a variable And they were saying we're going to take the interest that we are making on the interest rates and take that and put it with your premium to actually pay the entire premium. And as interest rates went down, once again, artificially modified by the Federal Reserve, Ronald Reagan administration, it did great things for the economy, did great things for the stock market, but it actually hurt the insurance companies, uh marketing of universal life. And it got really bad later on, 20 years later, 30 years later, when all these policies did not keep up with their cash value at the 12 to 15% interest rates predicted. And thus the companies were now informing people that were close to mortality Oh, you're, yeah, we know you said the interest was, or the uh, premium was $100 a month, but we're sorry. Per contract, we said we thought it was going to be 12 to 15% return, but it wasn't. So now you actually have to put more money into the contract if you want to keep this alive or not lapse. Which recently, is not
1: guaranteed premiums, by the way.
0: <laughs> no. And what happened was, and recently, I mean, I've dealt with this several times. I've never sold a Universal Life product, the, the, the own Universal Life product. I have sold some index Universal Life. We'll talk about that la- later. But I have dealt with this in my own family. My father-in-law, 25 years ago, bought a small death benefit of about $50,000, and he only had to pay like $40 a month because they predicted the interest was going to be great enough to make up the difference. Just a month ago, he gets a letter in the mail that says your $40 a month is actually going up to $340 a month. That is a huge bump for most older people that are in the retirement situation. So his only option, his options were increase $340 a month to keep the $50,000, decrease it to $25,000 death benefit to $25,000, lower the, the, the monthly payment to one forty, dollars but guess what? The enforced illustration said that one forty dollars would only be good for one year. And so after one year, he was going to have to decrease it from $25,000 to $10,000 to keep it at $140 a month. I've used this example On the podcast before but i'm going to do it again because it's a great example that one of my mentors taught me universal life index universal life variable universal life are great you're really happy at the very beginning because you're putting in minimum funded and you it looks great in your eyes it's like a hot air balloon rising up in the air and you're looking down over the landscape and everything's beautiful oh it's so calm and quiet up here I'm only have to pay a little bit for all this death benefit and, and either the, in, the interest rate, the index or the mutual funds are gonna keep it going. And then all of a sudden you get to the place where you're really close to mortality. And now all of a sudden it doesn't perform the way it says it's gonna perform. It's like the hot air balloon had actually caught on fire and you don't know what to do because if you stay in the hot air balloon, you're going to actually die. Same way with my father-in-law. If he kept paying 340, he was going to run out of money. And so thus he was going, it's like dying. If he jumps out, he gives up all the money he ever paid into the contract. And he dies because he has no hot air balloon anymore. He has no death benefit anymore. So, When you're looking for certainty, and I know there's going to be people screaming at this podcast again, saying, yeah, but that's because it was minimally funded. Index universal life, we maximally funded. Variable universal life, we maximally funded. We talk about this. Nelson would say, all right, let's go back to people's personal um, issues about the arrival syndrome, the use it and lose it, Parkinson's law, Willie Sutton law. The golden rule. Human nature tends not to follow what they say they were going to do. So well, because there's unpredictable
1: the situations that arise that you cannot foresee and you don't know how you're gonna handle them until you get there. Go okay, ahead, somebody yeah. Yeah, I'm we've sorry. got we've got quite a few comments here. So I was um were you reading the comments here? Let's ad- let's address yeah. this um, DMF5RN first. Yeah. I popped yeah. a comment in here, but he said, I'm confused why Bruce switched to talking about universal life, IBC based whole life, correct? And Bruce, I cut out and dropped out of the show while you were in the middle of talking about that as well. So um, I just put a comment back in saying, some people think that it would be a great idea to use universal life for infinite banking because it promises, again here, it promises higher growth. However, it is not effective- banking because it doesn't have the guarantees and it doesn't have the ability to know that you're going to have the death benefit that you paid for with the premium that you set up in the contract. Bruce, I, you can add anything else that you want to that, but I want well, to make sure. I, the,
0: only, the only reason I brought that up, um, DMF5RN, is because in the book, Nelson actually talks about this and he, he talks about it and he says, I do not recommend this for infinite banking concept. We are not saying that you cannot do this and you cannot develop cash value and you can borrow against it. We're just saying the lack of guarantees actually puts this in even more danger if you are borrowing against these contracts. Why is that? Because with index universal life, variable universal life, Universal life, there's no guarantees that they are going to continue to grow with a compounding loan interest if you take the a loan against it. Now, once again, I know people are going to say, wait a minute, there's guarantees in these. You can buy guaranteed universal life. Yes, they what they say is you're guaranteed to keep the death benefit if you make the increased payment. That's what the guarantee is. You
1: can't know what the increased payments will be at the beginning of the contract, something that would crop up later. It, while you're already in the contract.
0: Yeah, so all, all we wanted to do is actually talk about the, the a couple of different other designs that marketing companies came. This is where we were t- talking about. Why was the evolution of this? Well, the first one was because the increase in, in interest rates. The second one was as interest rates went down, people had more uh, money in their disposal during the late 80s, early 90s. So they started pumping it into the stock market the extra money. Stock market went up, insurance companies said, oh, now they don't wanna put it in universal life because the interest rates are so low. Let's make a new product. And they made variable universal life because now they said, all you gotta do is invest in these mutual funds and the growth of the mutual funds will pay your premium. Then we had the stock market crash of 2001. And in, in, in the index universal life was brought out. A, not, there's some controversy over this. Some people said it was 1995. Most of my research says it's 1999. Either way, it's within the last uh, 25 years. And so now they said, oh, well, yeah, it's universal or variable universal life was bad because you can lose all the money in the mutual funds. Now let's put a floor on this so that you can't lose any. But by the way, the only way we can do that is we have to actually buy options to protect the insurance company from the loss of money, because somebody's going to be losing money in this situation. So they're going to buy options, or they're called uh, put options, so that if they lose, they actually uh, it's a it's it's like a little insurance contract within the in the insurance agency to protect them. Well, as as a low growth in the index continues the expense of buying the option gets greater and greater and greater because they have to make up for the losses that they were protecting think about regular insurance companies if they have a lot of losses from a hurricane they have to increase their premiums to make up for all the losses they incurred the same thing happens with index universal life if they have too many years where they have a zero Where you didn't lose any money, the next year's actually the options increase. And oh, by the way, per contract, they pass those on to the policyholder. They do not take that on because that's just another expense and they will not be profitable. So,
1: so let's, um, I wanna comment on or bring in the comments that are on multiple platforms here, but also Nelson says at the end of this chapter, if you're, considering any of these different kinds of insurance that are not whole life insurance that you should read several books. And he lists one is called the truth about mutual funds. Then he says, read the battle for the soul of capitalism by John Bogle, the originator of the Vanguard fund. Then he said, read the pirates of Manhattan by Barry Dyke. Dyke. Mm -hmm. And so those are some additional reading that I want to throw out there that Nelson Nash recommends. And if you have you need to get becoming your own banker. You can get that by going to the Nelson Institute and copy of becoming your own banker. Um, There's also some more comments. So let's just go back to. Uh, so I think. we're Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're cutting out a little bit, Rachel. So. Um, I'll oh, just. Go ahead, uh, Bruce. Yeah. I'll comment on this. So Roy, Roy Lee. Uh, says there's a lot of false promises and expectation that many marketers use when misrepresenting the IBC contract with bad products. And Roy Lee, I agree with that. But I think it, for your own sanity and for, and for to honor Nelson's legacy, a lot of these people that are doing this truly believe, they're not bad people, okay? They truly believe that what they're doing is good nelson though and the institute um do the, we do not recommend that you use i um in, in index universal life or variable universal life for ibc that doesn't mean you cannot do it okay um but we do not want you to call it ibc because what ends up happening now is in the future just like that wall street journal article said a lot of universal life policies are going bad. We believe index universal life policies will go bad. And then people see, will say, see, IBC doesn't work. And so we don't want it to be associated with IBC. You can call it whatever you want, else you want, but you can't call it IBC. All right, uh, we will post those books for you. I would encourage you, though, to uh, buy um, Nelson's Becoming Your Own Banker. And, and also, Nelson wrote another book, I think it might even be a little bit better, called The Case for IDC. And that is a really, really good book. And it's, it's, more, um, it's more concise. It doesn't take the human element so much. Okay. All right. All right. So, everybody, um, thanks for listening today. Uh, we are having a little technical difficulty with Rachel's uh, uh, probably with our internet connection. We, we had a lot of people commenting today um, and we really appreciate that. We like interactive stuff. So in closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few and not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Until next time, thanks for listening.
1: Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com.